0: Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't wanna call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is gonna have any useful answers for you. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID 19, a segment we call Corona Calls. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg.
1: Good morning. I
0: want to start by going over a, a couple new papers that caught my attention and I'm sure caught yours as well that seem to shed a little bit more light on how COVID does and does not spread or form waves. Um, the, the first came out just a, a week ago in a journal called NPJ Viruses that was trying to assess the question of whether the fact that we seem to have more COVID cases in the winter has anything to do with uh, how atmospheric conditions and temperatures affect the virus once it's in the open. And what the authors of this study did is uh, got a lot of hamsters who are capable of spreading the virus Uh, kept them caged but not in contact with each other sharing air under different temperatures and relative humidities Uh, and on the basis of running those trials came to the conclusion that the temperature and humidity itself has no statistically significant bearing on how the virus spreads since we do seem to get a surge in cases every winter um, the question i was left with is what gives (laughs)
1: <laughs> that was the question that I was left with as well, Brian. Um, well, we've we've observed for essentially forever that respiratory viruses tend to spread with greater facility in cold months, uh, where the humidity is lower and where people are inside, likely more crowded with other people. So from that information we've tried to do after the fact reasoning and try and figure out what is it about the environment that is leading to this increase in cases. And the obvious conclusions that people came to, I certainly would as well, or did as well, and that is that people are more indoors. That would make sense because we know these viruses can spread a lot easier indoors. The humidity is lower and the colder weather may have something to do with your mucosa, the lining of your nose and back of your throat may be drier and may crack a little bit and may leave more receptor sites for the virus. But all of these things were uh, just ideas. And while there's some science to support them, there's not a great deal. And that's what was so intriguing to you and to me about this paper. Granted, it's in hamsters and granted they can't completely recapitulate what's happening in the, in the world of human beings, but still it is interesting. I think the bottom line to this is that clearly viruses take advantage of the winter season, but we don't know what it is about the winter season that allows them to spread with such great facility. Well one thing
0: it suggests is that the the spread is in some way socially determined right either it's that we're indoors or that we're we're gathering in more extensive social networks because of holiday travel uh it is things within our control, not the weather
1: right it certainly does suggest that but that's it's only because we've ruled they ruled out at least in the hamster model the other 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 ideas for spread <clears throat> my um you know, it, it's so difficult to know. People are saying now that uh, COVID has now become a seasonal virus because we always have much more, sur- many more surges in these winter months than we have throughout the rest of the year. But that's not completely true. We've had some large surges in the summer. Now that was a couple of years ago with Delta. Um, but if we look at the Southern Hemisphere right now, Australia, New Zealand, uh, for example, are struggling with lots of cases of COVID, and this is their summer months. Now, the only thing that's different, that's the same there as it is here is, as you were just saying, it's the social determinants. And that is people are traveling more because of the holidays and getting together indoors more. Um, So it's all very interesting. And I think um, probably the best we can say is that we don't know for sure why we see it more in in the winter months than in the summer. But I would like to emphasize that uh, COVID is not, Yet, like influenza and respiratory syncytial virus, a seasonal virus.
0: Second study that came out last week, and, and this is where I'm going to need uh, more of your help explaining the the conclusions. <clears throat> uh, paper published in Nature Immunology looking at uh, people who got symptoms of long COVID, and they were doing a lot of uh, serology, de- detailed studies of blood work. And... They came to the conclusion that a significant number of long COVID cases involved uh, systemic inflammation and immune dysregulation, implying a ongoing immune response to COVID. Um, I, as a layperson, need you to unpack the vocabulary. Uh, what does immune dysregulation mean? What's its significance for people who have long COVID?
1: It was a very interesting paper, um, and I think an important paper to shed some more light on what long COVID is and what's causing, at least in some people, long COVID. Immune dysregulation referred to, or what they were calling it, was where the orchestra of the immune system wasn't playing on tune. What I mean by that is we have lots of different cells and chemicals involved in the immune system. We, most of your of the listeners are aware of about T cells and B cells, T cells being the ones that are involved in longer-term immunity and, but coordinate and are somewhat of the conductor of the entire immune system. The B cells produce the antibodies that protect us. <clears throat> what they found in the study was that the B cell T cell relationship wasn't as I said, playing on tune. It they, they wasn't what they, would, they saw in the control people, that is people who did not have long COVID. That's what they're talking about. And they drilled down a little further and found other examples of that in the, in the T cell and B cell relationship. So they postulated that this may be leading to ongoing inflammation in the body and that ongoing inflammation, at least in some people with long COVID, is what's causing their symptomatology.
0: And also postulated that it's a consequence of an ongoing immune reaction to COVID after the the acute phase of the infection has ended.
1: That's right. And they went further and postulated that this could represent This could be caused by the persistence of the virus in some of our tissue, or at least parts of the virus in some of our tissue that could be causing this to happen. And they went even further to raise the question, um, would the use of an antiviral drug like Paxlovid in people with long COVID, perhaps a month course of Paxlovid, for example, lead to a decrease in any viral viruses that are left or viral particles that may be left, and that would allow the immune system to play in tune again. Um, All these are hypotheses, um, and they're very intriguing, and they certainly have to be pursued, and they are being pursued. For example, there are studies that are happening now that are looking at some of these questions about antiviral drugs for people with long COVID. To date, we just don't have any solid information about that.
0: So it doesn't generate any hypotheses about treating long COVID that, that aren't already being tested.
1: That's correct. Um, there are at least four strong hypotheses as to why people develop long COVID. And frankly, all four could be true. Um, long COVID is just a sort of a wastebasket term for people with persistent and, very, and often very different symptoms that just keep going on and on and on. And there may be very different causes and different people.
0: All right. At this point, we should open up the phone lines. Welcome in our listeners. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg. He is here to answer your questions on Corona calls. The phone number 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008 for any questions you have on how to navigate the pandemic. Um, We'll start, as we normally do, with a couple from the inbox while the phone lines are filling up. The first comes from a a person who did not sign their name at the bottom in Berkeley who asks how you recommend getting PCR testing now that it is no longer available easily. And also, what is your opinion of uh, home PCR tests? This person mentioned metrics and Q. Sure.
1: You know, it's a question that, is very um, important, Uh, and I dealt with it over the weekend. I have a very dear friend who's in his later 80s and uh, had, quote, a cold for two or three days. And when I talked to him, I said, well, you need to get tested. And he said, well, um, I have an antigen test at home. I'll do that. I said, fine, do that and let me know the results. And then he called me and said he was just befuddled with how to do the antigen test. Um, Just couldn't really figure it out well and forgot to put the fluid in and so on. So I said, well, look, um, I understand uh, if you have COVID, you know, there's often sometimes some brain fog associated with that. Don't worry about being befuddled, but you do need to get tested. Let's go and get you to somewhere where they can do a PCR test on you, or at least they could do an antigen test on you. And then I spent about a half an hour trying to find a place for him to go. Um, I couldn't believe how difficult it was. Finally found a place not far from his house. He went over there um, because he had both Medicare and um, private insurance. He had it covered and had a PCR test done, a rapid PCR test. It was positive. Um, Called me and got on Paxlovid right away. Fortunately, he's doing very well. But the fact that I had a lot of trouble finding a place to get a PCR test, um, it was frustrating, but for elderly people, particularly without somebody to help them, uh, it can be very difficult. It's really a very unfortunate that we're, we really dismantled our diagnostic systems. It's unfortunate in the example I was just giving you. It's unfortunate because we don't have a lot of virus to study to know what Subvariants and variants may be circulating. So we've we've lost really a major tool that we have to understand this pandemic. Um, So, yes, it's difficult um, in terms of finding where to get a PCR test. In terms of the home tests, they're pretty good. Um, You don't get the results right away, uh, but you do get them in a fairly timely fashion, and they approach the sensitivity of the tests that are done in the – uh, laboratory. So they are, they are pretty good. They are also expensive. Right. I think maybe,
0: uh, we should take a second before we go to the the people patiently waiting on the phone to unpack the usefulness of a PCR test versus a, uh, one of the cheap home tests, the rapid antigen tests. Um, I, I was reading another paper. We didn't get into it in the research roundup, uh, suggesting that now, as opposed to earlier in the pandemic uh viral load is peaking about four days after the onset of infection uh, of symptoms rather and not crossing the threshold where it would register a positive on one of those tests until you're about three days into symptoms again this is on on average it's a a, a bell-shaped curve uh that could have all kinds of implications including people getting a false sense of security if they've had a couple of negative tests uh, or or people being delayed too long to start Paxlovid within its effective window.
1: You're right. Um, that That's exactly what that study showed. It's consistent with what we're seeing clinically that is in the community. Um, I know lots of people who test themselves because they have symptoms. The home test is negative and they just assume they don't have COVID and go about their daily activities, um, only to become positive two or three days later. I think that um, I think this paper is likely spot on, and I think that it really needs to tell us something about how we're behaving, what we're doing during this pandemic in terms of trying to protect other people. By that I mean, I think that. Anybody who has symptoms of COVID has to assume they have COVID until proven otherwise. And proving otherwise does not mean one antigen test that's negative. It means if that test is negative, you still consider yourself possibly to have COVID and do all the necessary things to prevent spreading it to others. And test yourself, the CDC says in 48 hours, you could test yourself if you have plenty of tests on a daily basis or every other day basis, and until you're out to day five, uh, after day five, um, you really have to assume you may have COVID and and, and isolate yourself, but people aren't doing that. Um, people are just saying, it, oh, it's just a cold, and COVID causes symptoms that are exactly like a cold, and these antigen tests Aren't becoming positive as early as they were earlier in the pandemic, and that's got something to do with how the virus is behaving in us these new subvariants,
0: or perhaps how our immune systems are responding to the virus now that most of us uh, either have vaccination or prior infection or both under our belts. Absolutely, um, yeah. That- If you are getting lost in the blizzard of references to papers, uh, I will just let our listeners know. Uh, We post links and full titles and citations in the show notes after we get off the air. Just look for KPFA Corona Calls. That's our podcast uh, where I post all the references so you can read the research yourself. For now, we're going to go to the phones. 1-800-958-9008 for your Corona Calls. First up is John in the North Bay Area. Good morning.
2: Hi. Great show! I always like to listen in the morning. Um, okay, t- two things. Uh, the caller you just had. Well, um, it reminds me. I I had a uh, one of my friends from childhood uh, came down from uh, where he lives in the Sierras and came down to Vallejo, Said he had a cold. This is over the holidays, and I told my friend. You know as good as well as I do. This is this guy is an anti-vaxxer, like. It, his whole family. And uh, it just makes me mad that he says, Oh, I just have a cold and I'm coming down for the holidays. Anyway, anyway, the other thing is, um, do you, do you have some uh, ideas or numbers about what's the distribution of like the RSV in California and, is it is it coming into the Bay Area and and tell me about uh, the COVID uh, prevalence in the Bay Area? Okay, okay, that's all I got to ask today. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, John. Um, in terms of uh, the epidemiology or how these three viruses are behaving RSV, flu, and COVID in the Bay Area, we're seeing an awful lot uh, of all three. The but let's drill down a little bit. Most of the best data we have is is really nationally, and California is fairly reflective of that. RSV looks like it has peaked and is starting to come down. Um, We've seen good signs of that over the last two weeks now. So we may have peaked with RSV and we're seeing cases come down. There's still a lot, but there's not as many as we were seeing two weeks ago and last week. So that's good news. Um, with influenza, the numbers uh, are continuing to go up. We're seeing the numbers of ER visits, uh, for example, going up. So I think that influenza is still in the ascendancy, but it may be showing some signs of reaching its peak, which is typically which it typically does, later in January, and we're starting the second half of January now. So I expect that we're going to see influenza reach its peak fairly soon now, maybe in a week, maybe in two weeks, and start to come down. COVID is actually causing, um, uh, as as Brian and I were discussing earlier, is causing a lot of cases right now. It's also the, the leading cause of hospitalization right now, and it's the leading cause of being in the ICU right now. And Tragically, it's the leading cause of death far more than influenza and RSV. COVID cases um, are showing in the last week, according to the CDC data, uh, that it may be peaking right now. There's a hint that hospitalizations may be a little bit less. They are a little bit less according to data that's being kept than they were a week ago. Um, The uh, ICU visits are a little bit less deaths are still going up, but death data lags by at least a month, so we can't really look at that in terms of telling us what's happened. Bottom line is, we're starting to reach, we either have reached or we're starting to reach the zenith for all three of these viruses. And I suspect by the end of this month, we're gonna see all three coming down. At least I've got my fingers crossed for that.
0: Great. Uh, Let's stick in the North Bay and go to Tom next, who is in Santa Rosa. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Um, I'd like to hear a comment about, lately in the news, there's been uh, this talk about DNA fragments being found in the mRNA vaccine vials.
1: Does that mean anything? Um, I'm glad you brought that up, Tom. This is... um... Uh, an idea uh, floated by the Surgeon General in Florida, uh, the DeSantis-appointed Surgeon General in Florida. Um, The bottom line to your question is, no, it means nothing. Um, Frankly, I think that um, the Surgeon General in Florida has committed uh, both medical and public health malpractice. Um, It's completely irresponsible that he made that statement. But like all disinformation, there's always a kernel of truth in that people build other things around. In the vaccine for COVID and in many other vaccines, there's little fragments of DNA. We are being constantly exposed to fragments of DNA by the air we breathe and much more so by the food we eat. Our bodies have multiple systems to make sure that that DNA doesn't cause any havoc within our cells. The amount of DNA that's in the vaccines, these fragments of DNA that's in the vaccines, is minuscule compared to the entire volume. So there's really no reason to worry about that. And I'm rarely this sort of absolute, but I'm just appalled by what the Surgeon General in Florida uh, suggested.
0: Mm. This, uh, first of all, I guess it shows what a bubble I'm in. This is the first I've heard about this, Dr. Swartzberg. This was by way of telling people it's a bad idea to get vaccinated as as the top public health officer of the state of Florida?
1: He he stated that he thought that mRNA vaccines should be immediately withdrawn.
0: Got it. So in theory, that would leave Novavax standing, but most people who are getting vaccinated are getting one of the two mRNA vaccines.
1: That's correct. All
0: right. Uh, Well, uh, that'll be where we leave things today because the clock has almost run out. Dr. Swartzberg, thank you so much for spending another, well, in this case, Tuesday with us.
1: (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you very much, Brian.
0: All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week's, you can email coronacalls at kpfa.org. Or tune in live to call in live. Usually we air Monday mornings right after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or kpfa.org anywhere in the world. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like... The information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. Appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.